Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you the listener clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic from the business owner's or executive's perspective. We aren't necessarily telling you what to do, but we can put you in a position to make an informed decision on your own and understand when you might need help along the way. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm a director at Brady Warren Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alpharetta, Georgia. Brady, we are sponsoring this podcast, which is being recorded in Atlanta for social distancing protocols. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast aggregator, and please consider leaving a review of the podcast as well. This is the fourth in a sub-series of topics regarding how to address the coronavirus crisis. And um, uh, we are, as everybody knows by now, we are faced with uh, an unprecedented um, environment in, in, in our economy. And as one of our guests, uh, quipped before we started the show, basically the way that, that he is helping save the world is by watching Netflix, but I will not out him and, uh, and reveal what the nature of the show is. Uh, he can choose to do that himself if he wants to, but I, I'm, I'm not going to do it for him. But that is sort of the world that we're living in, right? The, 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 the best way we can help people is, uh, is, is to do as little as we possibly can. Um, and as a result of that, we are seeing uh, an unprecedented rebalancing of the economy. We have whole industries such as restaurants that are shutting down uh, en masse. We have other industries that are now booming and considered vital industries such as um, anything supply chain grocery stores, drug stores, <clears throat> Amazon.com, and so forth. And we're even now seeing companies that are getting, that are stopping the businesses in which they're normally engaged uh, so that they can, they can manufacture other things. You know, Hanes is supposedly gearing up to manufacture these N95 uh, virus protection masks. And uh, Tesla and Ford are gearing up uh, in partnership with uh, General Electric to produce uh, uh, ventilators. Um, we, we, we just haven't seen anything like this before, certainly not since, not since World War II. And even then, it's, uh, it's sort of a faint echo. So if, if you're like me and most other people, we're thrashing around for some kind of guidance on how to address the issues that are now facing uh, facing all of our uh, all of our businesses, frankly, whether we own the business, we're an executive, or even an employee trying to help keep the lights on. And today we're going to talk about managing real estate assets and obligations in in a shutdown world. And you know, we, we real estate is kind of funny. It's one of those things that you don't appreciate, uh, I, I think, uh, until it's gone in spite of the fact that we have a president who sort of made his claim to fame initially uh, in, in real estate. Um, but, but real estate's a real, uh, no pun intended, is a real issue. Um, it's, it's no longer being used. 
Um, and it's some, been under some pressure anyway, particularly on the retail side. Um, but it's, it's no longer being used. In some cases, it's being repurposed. We're seeing hotels in Manhattan that are being commandeered now um, to serve effectively as uh, field hospitals. That is perhaps an extreme case, but I think that's going to come to other cities, including Atlanta. Um, and, 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 you know, real estate that has been, you know, office areas that have been previously bustling with activity and <clears throat> have been a home away from home, frankly, for millions of employees are now shut down, locked down, basically ghost towns. And this provides a whole unique set of, of problems that, and challenges, and maybe some opportunities too, that we need to understand how to address. Because just because we're not working there, that doesn't mean the real estate and the obligations that go with it suddenly disappear. Those have not shut down. And joining us to help us understand this question are, are my longtime friends, Brooks Morris and Andy Roberts of Cressa. Now, you may remember we had another person from Cressa on, Jason Jones, um, who uh, used used to fly navigation and ordnance in uh, A6 intruders, used to fly aircraft carriers. And he came on to help us understand the uh, the benefits of, of, uh, of hiring uh, veterans. But now we're bringing a few, couple of people on from Cressa to actually talk about real estate. And Cressa is an international commercial real estate firm headquartered in Washington, D.C., and they represent tenants and provide real estate services, including corporate services, strategic planning, transaction management, project management, facilities management, workforce and location planning, portfolio and lease administration, capital markets, supply, supply chain management, sustainability, and sublease and distribution. Formed in 1993, Cressa now has more than 60 offices and 900 employees. Brooks Morris is a senior vice president of Cressa Atlanta with over 20 years of executive experience. Prior to starting his real estate career, Brooks was with Enterprise Holdings, a $17 billion global transportation company. Brooks is known for recruiting, developing, leading, and motivating teams to achieve targeted customer service, sales, operational growth, and profit goals. He was rapidly promoted four times to executive positions in different markets with responsibilities overseeing multiple businesses and brands. Joining Cressa in 2015, boy, it's been that long already. Uh, Brooks has a mission to deploy his years of experience through client advisement. His unique perspective from multiple angles of real estate transactions allows him to take a holistic approach while consulting on each of his clients' needs. His proven results assure the focus will always be to use real estate as a platform to support recruiting and retaining talent, brand enhancement, growth, and profitability. Brooks grew up in Los Angeles and played baseball for and graduated from the University of California, Santa Barbara. Did not know that. Uh, he loves spending time with family, reading, golf, sports, water skiing, and working in the yard. Uh, he and I have to talk about that. I hate working in the yard, so maybe we can make a trade. He and his wife and two children live in the Buckhead neighborhood of Atlanta. Andy Roberts began his commercial real estate career by raising capital for various real estate investment trust portfolios that are now traded on the New York Stock Exchange. Through this experience, Andy developed a passion for consulting clients in the various dynamics of real estate. Andy joined Cressa in mid-2014 to help clients navigate their real estate decisions in a market where a growing percentage of properties are institutionally owned. 
Andy enjoys educating clients on the idea that their real estate decisions impact not only the financial bottom line, but one's cultural and labor dynamics as well. Andy and his wife, Jill, live in Atlanta with their four young children where they enjoy spending time together with fam- family and friends. And God knows they're getting ample opportunity to do that. Uh, Brooks and Andy, thank you so much for joining us in the program. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for it's great us. to be here. So uh, I want to... I want to start with something that is is tangential to the topic, but I think it's important for people to understand exactly what you do and how you do it, because that that will help people understand the nature of your informed perspective on what we're talking about today. Um, And that is, um, what is exactly a tenant representative? It's not a household name like like a fireman or a doctor or a lawyer. So maybe you can explain to our audience what a tenant representative does. Sure. So we at Cressa, and just in general, a tenant representative exclusively represents tenants. And, and let me let me back up. You have a number of commercial real estate firms. Um, majority of the commercial real estate firms receive a majority of the revenue from landlord representation. A, a tenant representative focuses on representing tenants, i.e., occupiers or, or companies. What's in general, that's how a tenant representative is defined. Now, what's unique about Cressa and what we do is we exclusively represent tenants, i.e. occupiers. So we are not representing any landlords, i.e. REITs, institutional owners. And we do that to remove all conflicts of interest so that we are completely free to focus on the needs of our clients, the occupiers. We're free to think beyond space and negotiate as hard as is required on behalf of our clients. So in general, that's what a tenant representative does, and that's what's unique about Cressa in that uh, we uh, are the largest global firm that exclusively represents tenants, or as we define it, occupiers. And, um, and that's, well said by, that's, that's well said by Andy. I'll add one thing to that. Um, to simplify, it's like, in the residential market, you, you have someone selling a house and you have a buyer's, you have a, a seller's agent and a buyer's agent. And we are the buyer's agent in the commercial space, whether you're buying real estate or leasing real estate. And, and uh, on the leasing side, I don't know this about the buying side, so you can educate me, but at least on the leasing side, even though you're the buyer's agent, you make your fee from the seller or the, the, the lessor, correct? That is correct. Just like in residential, commercial real estate is set up in a way that the landlords pay their broker a portion of the fee and the tenant's broker a portion of the fee. So um, let, let's, let's wind the clock back to, to happier, more predictable times. Let's go back to, say, February 1st. What was the commercial real estate market in Atlanta like at that point? First of all, February 1st feels like a year or two ago. I know, it does. Right? Um, It was a landlord's market. The development around the U.S. and very much so in Atlanta of new office space uh, was was accelerating. Lots of projects 
and the it was a very healthy market. Tenant incentives had been reducing. Um, large blocks of space were competitively being uh, uh, pursued uh, by multiple tenants in, in some cases for you know one or two large blocks of space. So very much a landlord's market and very much a situation where tenants had to be very uh, uh, not just thoughtful in advance with strategy, uh, but ready to execute when they found the right property because uh, properties and spaces were moving quickly. And, yeah, that's and, a great analysis. And I'd add to that, it was a, um, I think, February 1st and during this pre-COVID season, we're seeing, unlike any time before, certainly for a number of decades, labor influencing commercial real estate more than ever in the sense that the focus was on, you know, the investment needs, investments need to be made to maintain a workforce and recruit a desirable workforce because, you know, we were continuing to enjoy such a long economic bull run. And if that investment was made via real estate, so be it. And, and you had that as well on the construction costs, you know, labor was so tight that the cost of construction was one of the main drivers of a, you know, an increasingly more expensive market, thus a, a landlord market. And I'll, I'll give one statistic. Uh, Piedmont Center in Buckhead is a, a group of about 15 buildings. And in 2016, the rental rate on those buildings was about $18 a square foot. And fast forward to February uh, 1st of 2020, those buildings are quoting, uh, in some cases, just over $30 per square foot. Wow. <laughs> and and I know that space, too, and and the space is, as, as far as it goes. But I, I've also... I've never been lost in any parking lot or complex more frequently than I've been lost <laughs> in that complex. I mean, I've, I've probably inadvertently parked about three quarters of a mile away from where my meeting's supposed to be. And uh, you, if you're you are astute, not alone. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that because I, I feel like a horse's ass, but I, um, and, but that's meaningful when it's, when it's an August uh, Atlanta day and you're wearing a suit and tie and uh, you show up to the meeting, and I basically look like LeBron James at the foul line in the fourth quarter of the game, um, just sweat pouring down my face. Um, <laughs> but if, you know, if, if even if if they're able to raise rents that much that quickly, that that shows you a pretty hot market for sure. So, um, uh, now, in I mean, now in the commercial real estate market i guess the, i guess really the question is is there a commercial real estate market have you guys pretty much frozen in place now is there is there anything going on right now what 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 does the market or the industry look like today you know to be perfectly well, candid I, I i think we're still in the fog of war if you will uh i think there's going to be some clarity that obviously comes with time, but just, you know, the initial 
impression is, I mean, just from personally, you know, clients and deals that were already in motion that were pretty close um, to getting done, those have continued to move forward. Uh, new deals and, and uh, the, those, most of the clients that I'm personally working with, and it seems to be the case where a number of colleagues are saying, hey, let's just put this on pause. Um, so uh, that's one dynamic. A second dynamic is you have obviously across the board companies trying to figure out you know holding on to every dollar cost cutting initiatives reaching out to their landlord saying hey you know what what can we do can we abate rent for three months four months at the same time you have those very same landlords having the same conversation with their lenders and It's it's all across the board. I mean, candidly, very large household institutions. I, I, there's been one that everyone would recognize that has come out and said, "Hey, three months abated, no questions asked. You know, we want to work with you." To another household prominent lender that has just said, "We're not we're not budging. We're not giving any grace, any mercy. Period." And so, obviously, obviously, those landlords are in a tight spot. They've got to turn around. They don't want to say the same thing to their, to their tenants, but they, they don't know if they can afford not to. And so it's really interesting. You don't have a consensus other than, you know, those conversations are being had a lot of probably wait and see, but it's just, it's really interesting because the, the responses are all over the map. Yeah. And I'll, I, to, to Andy's point, you know, Andy said it, very well. I, I, there's three buckets. There's the bucket of, of industries. We all know retail, uh, some transportation, hospitality, uh, event companies that are just getting clobbered. And you've got the middle bucket of, you know, a lot of professional services firms um, and, and, and some other, some other industries that are, are feeling it. There's a cut in revenue, but they're, they're doing okay. They're just having to be diligent about making some cuts here and there within their business. And then there's another bucket. And a lot of this has falls into the industrial space category of businesses that are just that are actually doing as well or better. And so depending upon who you're working with is going to drive what you need to do in the real estate market right now uh, for those different groups. And to Andy's point, uh, a lot of what I'm working on was already working on that was close to being done. If there's any any sort of certainty in their business, and an expiration coming up of their lease. We are moving forward and taking action. Anything that ex- was an expansion, because everybody has gone remote for this period of time, um, most of those projects have been put on pause. And, and it's a wait and see. And as soon as we have more clarity, then we'll decide on what to do moving forward. You know, it, it occurs to me that there's a signaling dynamic going on here, a signaling process. You know, when a, when a bank or a landlord tells their borrower or their, their tenants respect, respectively, what, you know, what, what they're prepared to do in terms of flexibility and forgiveness and forbearance, I think tells you a lot about how they think this movie ends, right? right. I, 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 think, I think that if, if they take a, a soft line, they're telling you that this movie doesn't necessarily have a very happy ending. It may be okay, right? But what they're really telling you is that 
we want to we want to keep you in place. We don't think there's necessarily another awesome borrower, another awesome tenant tenant that's walking around the corner. So we're going to go with the devil we know. We're going to hang on to what we have and ride it out. And if we take a haircut, we take a haircut. But we'd rather we'd rather get eighty cents in the dollar than zero. Whereas I think the hardliners are basically saying, you know what? Um, at some point, whether it's Memorial Day, whether it's Fourth of July, Labor Day, God, I hope it's not that long. But um, you know, there's going to be a a, re- a a reboot, basically, and somebody pushes a big red button somewhere that is, and throws a lever that's supposed to restart the economy, and they think there's a basically a rubber band effect that everything's going to go back to normal, and if 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 you default and we have to, we wind up, you know, if you have to default, then we're happy to take your property because we think there'll be a ready market or we're happy to, to declare you in default because uh, we think that there are going to be six tenants waiting around the corner. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think that's, I think that's an interesting signaling effect that, that, uh, you know, economists and economics geeks like me want to maybe look at to understand what the market sentiment is going forward. That's a great point. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great um, point. I, I think go ahead. No, you said it was a great point. I want to hear more about my great point. Well, I, you, <laughs> the the signal, uh, you're correct. It, it does send a signal, but it also these anytime there's change that happens or there's challenge is a challenging environment we're all navigating through. Uh, sometimes it also sends the signal on what's the philosophical approach of a, of a business owner, owner or ownership group. And sometimes that has nothing to do with the economy moving forward and their feelings on that, but just how they approach business. And are they looking at a tenant as a long-term partner and somebody that they want to share success with, or are they looking at it in a transactional way? And we'll, we, we're learning right now who are the partners and who are transactional. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that I think that's a great point. And and um, you know, you really do find out who your friends are in 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 crisis. And maybe there's a psychological element to it as well. You know, I think this whole I think this whole coronavirus crisis and scenario in which we find ourselves has put us into a collective state of of grief. And you know, the first stage is is denial. And just as I think there have been many people who've been in denial, though I think that number is rapidly diminishing, right? But but yeah. you can see they're the ones going out to spring break and they're still getting together in large groups and I, I, I guess coughing at each other just to see what will happen, um, <laughs> you know, but, but um, you know, uh, there's probably some of that, there's probably some of that psychology in the business market too, where there's just a, you know, it's, it's a scenario that can go so sideways and so horrifically that I think some I think some people and businesses psychologically just go to a place of denial because because they're just not emotionally ready to embrace the potential reality. Agreed. Yeah, um, you know, and to your point, Michael, on an economic point, I think Brooks put it really well. Made some great points, and I think what's so unique about this scenario is, you know, and it's going to be interesting to see how the legislation plays out because you have historically, when it comes to real estate as a broad brush, legislation is first seen in the residential arena. 
for you know, it, it, and I think personally, probably because you know politicians score more points that way. Yep. Um, you know, for example, a number of states have already come out and said, hey, you know, you can there can be no foreclosures on any residential homes for X number of of weeks or months. You you, you know, the commercial real estate arena. The legislation, uh, if it happens, happens much further down the road. It's going to be interesting to see if that legislation does take place in a commercial arena. So, for example, you know, if you have tenants defaulting, uh, to what degree can the landlords, you know, what retribution do they have? And, and his, you know, if they're prevented legislatively from doing so, and I think what may drive that in this arena is his. You know, historically, defaults have been from financial reasons. So, for example, you know, 08, 09, there was too much debt involved and an irresponsible underwriting of the debt. I, I, you know, no one in who's alive today has seen this type of scenario where the driver is a medical health dynamic where, you know, sadly, tragically, you know, a thousand Americans are are dying a day, you know? And so there's this kind of this social element overlying this that I think is so unique where it's not, you know, your typical debt problem. It's a, you know, it's just kind of a war with an invisible enemy that, that, that you, it's almost like for someone to come out and foreclose, you know, it's just, there's kind of a level of evilness to it that I, I think there's this social pervasiveness that's unprecedented and it's going to be really interesting to see how it plays out. And it's going to be, I think that could drive greater legislation in the commercial arena, for example, you know, not allowing landlords to um, penalize a tenant for defaulting. Um, well, time will tell, but that'll be, uh, that'll be interesting because usually that legislation stops in the residential arena. So, um, you know, a lot of offices are empty. Ours is largely empty, although we, a, a few people are coming in, but a fraction. Uh, most of us are are working from home. Um, if you've got an if you've got an office that is basically empty, right? You know, em- empty assets are scary. Right? I remember, I remember when I was a kid. And this this probably explains a lot about me. You know, when there was a when there was an abandoned house or a house in our neighborhood that that had construction that was that was paused for a while. We, we would go into that house and we would find pieces of wood and huck them at each other. <laughs> um, and we'd find pieces of copper, copper tubing and whack each other with them basically. And uh, you, you know, it's illustrative of what can happen if you have real estate that is not sort of being looked after. And if I've got an office that is now, you know, basically, basically empty, is there something that I need to be doing as a tenant Um uh, to be looking after my real estate or, you know, my space, even though I don't own it, it's still important, it's still an asset. There's something I need to be looking, doing to look after it or take care of it during this, this down period. It depends on the, the position of the real estate. So if you're an owner, um, you're going to be looking at this differently. If you're yeah. a tenant, of a full service office, you're really not going to need to do anything per se, uh, because the landlord through the full service structure of the building uh, or the lease contract is going to be responsible for everything. Um, 
And I would say if there's anything that is that you're responsible for be within that 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 those four walls, maybe it's uh, maybe it's phones, internet that you probably have already moved to remote and cloud. Uh, there may be some opportunities to make sure that you, your expense is being allocated appropriately. If you're an industrial user and you are leasing a bill and you're on a triple net lease and you are leasing a building that you're the only tenant in, there lies some opportunity and operating expenses that you're responsible for as a tenant that you can take a look at and go, they say, go dark in a building basically turn certain things off so you're not paying for them while you're not using them. Um, those would be the, the only things that you would be really looking at doing while you're not using the real estate. And it's, it really pertains to industrial spaces. But those particular businesses right now, most of them are in business and in some cases thriving. Yeah. You know, I, Brooks makes a great point. I think it'd be interesting to, or it's worthy to note, let's take, for example, uh, an office building, a classy office building. There's multiple tenants. Um, tenants, and, and Brooks is right. It's it's on the landlord's onus to run that building. And so I think, you know, every tenant in their lease is going to have typically pass through of operating expenses that they're, you know, in the increase in operating expenses they're going to be responsible for paying in the next calendar year. And so I I do think it's responsible for tenants to currently be in communication with their landlord on what are they doing to mitigate expenses while the, the buildings are vacant so the tenants can, you know, be able to enjoy those savings. And then also keep in touch on, you know, what are the potential increase expenses that are around the corner? So you have, you know, likely there's going to be new janitorial dynamics. Uh, there's also likely, you know, in the, when America gets back to work, if you will, you're hearing a lot of sentiment towards, you know, kind of not everyone just goes back on Monday, you know, it's kind of, you're phasing in and almost to the point where you have longer hours, you know, certain departments working in the morning, certain departments working in the evening, and you have kind of maybe an overlap of one or two just to help respect social distancing as we start phasing back in. So then you get into, you know, an, an office building, the HVAC, for example, I mean, you know, hopefully this is happening late spring, summer, well, HVAC expenses are at their highest at that point. And typically a building will say, okay, well, you know, we're going to be running HVAC from say eight to six. Well, now if you're running it from seven to eight or nine at night, you're going to have higher expenses. So tenants need to be aware of how are those expenses going to be passed on to them and what's their, what's going to be their cap that they have in their lease on what the expense increase will be next year. So I, I do think there's some currently some planning that can take place on the tenant's behalf that'll serve them well. You know, let, let me and jump Mike, on that. Mike, Go ahead. Mike, one, one thing I just thought of, I should have already mentioned as it pertains to your question and what you can do while you're not in your space right now, as it pertains to any metropolitan building that uh, charges for parking, in most cases right now, the length, because you're not using that parking, you can negotiate with your landlord to not pay for that parking potentially. We've done that within ours. So that's something for sure to look at. Okay. Yeah, that's and that's good advice. That's an actionable thing. People can, if they haven't done it already, they can do right away. Um, 
so we touched upon this a little bit, but I want to I want to make sure to address this explicitly. Um, you know, there's a provision in the CARES Act, and as you mentioned, several states as well that are basically freezing uh, home real estate obligations. But that's not really impacting the commercial sector, right? If, at least, at, you know, unless you've negotiated something, if you're a business tenant, you still have to pay your rent, right? Correct. Correct. So, what is interesting is a number of landlords, when the when tenants have requested to defer rent for a number of, they say three months, typically is the, the common average, a number of landlords are saying, hey, noted your request, uh, let's you know, pursue these avenues with the CARES Act and let's circle back end of April and, you know, say mid-May because they, they'd really, they're, and understandably so, they, they'd like to see these tenants be able to receive the provisions through the CARES Act so that, you know, obviously the landlords don't have to defer rent, which is understandable. But that, to your point, that that's a common conversation taking place in the industry. So uh, the, the the unfortunate reality is that not every business is going to come back from this. Um, uh, but the lease obligation may still remain. So if, if, if in fact your business is not going to survive this, but you're the only thing that may survive is your lease obligation. What, what are your, what are your options as a tenant to try to get out from under or mitigate that, that obligation? Well, the first thing you want to do is, is, Pull out your lease, get with your commercial real estate advisor, whether that's us or someone else, and your attorney, and make sure you understand every single component of that lease and what your options are pertaining to that contract. Usually, there's going to be a sublease provision that allows you to sublease as an option. So you want to understand what that looks like and what that might, what that exit might realistically look like. Um, hope in some cases, some, some companies have ne- negotiated termination options. So that could be, that could be an option. Um, there could be an option to restructure your lease. Maybe there's an option to downsize and you certain and communication is key here. You, you want to engage with your landlord a, a, after you understand what your options are. You want to know what the landlord's position is because they may have different things happening within their building with their existing tenants. And as business comes back, depending upon how well that building's doing, they they may want that space back or need that space depending on the on the size. And that's that's a low percentage opportunity, but it's one that should be explored. Um, Andy, any other thoughts that I'm missing? No, those are those are all great points. You're nailing it. And you know, certainly, typically a lease will spell out a termination if it if you have a termination clause, and or if it's um essentially what those costs would be. I, I think uh, for a tenant to be fully aware, what were the landlord's costs to structure this lease uh, and largely in the build out, what have you, you know, to understand how the landlord's going to be viewing this financially will be advantageous for a tenant. It, it may be, you know, you're having to come out of pocket for a termination uh, agreement or, or clause, but um, just knowing eyes wide open, what that number will be, will be helpful. Yeah, my so, my advice, the biggest thing is just to be proactive, not wait around to get with your advisors to build a strategy quickly that you can execute quickly if that's the direction things are going, because there will be other subleases coming to the market and you want to be in front of it. 
we're talking with Andy Roberts and uh, uh, Brooks Morris of uh, of Cressa uh, about managing your real estate obligations and assets in a uh, in a pandemic world. And I want to interject here. Um, I've 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 interrupted them a couple of times inadvertently, and I apologize for that. One of the challenges of doing this remotely and not in the studios, we don't normally have the visual cues where I can tell accurately if people are done talking or not. Um, so, uh, I'm not on speed or anything like that. I just want, this is sort of, uh, me learning about how to, how to, um, conduct interviews also in a, uh, in a coronavirus world. Um, but getting back to this now, I, I want to touch back. I want, I want to touch now then on, on something that you said, cause I want to drill down a little bit. And, and that is that, you know, the, the, the reaction or the posture of the landlord does vary. Uh, from landlord to landlord, and that may be driven ultimately by how their bank is treating this. Um, but generally, are, are you finding more often than not that that landlords do want to work with their tenants in some way to accommodate them? Or do you find that still right now they're more likely to take a, a hard line? Or is it is it in fact 50-50 as far as you're seeing it? Yeah, I, I don't your, want... Go ahead, yeah. Go ahead, Brooks. I, I, I wouldn't say it's fifth. It's hard to say right now because I, I would say the majority are taking the approach that we want to help. There is a, a percentage, which is a smaller percentage, that's basically saying yes and taking action immediately and saying we will help get us this information um, and we're going to go ahead and accommodate your request. The larger percentages, we want the help, but we can't. We want to make sure you really need the help. So these are the things we need to see from you and let us process this. And I'd say there's another, there's a small percentage that are taking the hard line. So I'd say the lion's share want to help. It's just they are taking a very thoughtful approach on what need, what what requirements need to be met in order for them to actually. Um, execute on giving that help yeah i think brooks is absolutely right i i I think your question michael the answer is yes and that landlords genuinely want to help i i don't i've yet to encounter any landlord that's kind of this evil villain you know laughing that they don't want to help it's um and i think from their perspective to be to, to be empathetic to their world they're internally discussing, okay, we have this tenant that's been a great tenant. They're asking for a you know rent deferment. We generally want to help them. And so then what A, what are our lenders willing to do? And then B, depending on how they're structured financially, it's commonly a question of, okay, well, what will the implications be to our investors? And and so they're they're a lot of times they're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. You know, you, you don't want to have a very difficult conversation with either. And I think the answer in this unique health pandemic is, you know, everyone to be transparent uh, as best you can. And I think the reality is both sides are going to have to, you know, essentially kind of receive a burden. Part of the, part of the cost for us as a society to get this behind us and, and move on. And I think um, hopefully there's a sentiment of goodwill that that'll carry that to some degree. And yet, you know, whether it's the investors carrying a bit of a cost, you know, I mean, so it's not like a landlord's you know, quick to say no. If they do say no to a tenants because they they don't want to say no to a 
to an investor. You know, for example, they don't want to tell them that, hey, with this unprecedented economy, your your dividend's about to go down. Um, and you've primarily invested in our fund because of the dividend dynamic. So they they are they are in a tough position. And yet I think both sides to get through this efficiently are just gonna have to recognize and transparently have the conversation. There's a cost to care and agree we can kind of split that amiably and, and move forward. And in, in an effort to give a tenant who is maybe listening or business owner or executive maybe listening to this an actionable item or set expectations, to Andy's point, these landlords either have a lender to pay themselves and they're not getting forgiveness for this at this point in time, or they have investors they're paying. And so the tenant needs to understand they're asking for help. And so in order for that to work, it's got to work for both parties. And if the landlord's going to help and you really need it, there are ways in which you can structure that help where the landlord can get something maybe towards the end of the lease that's beneficial to them, but it allows the tenant to receive relief today. So the tenant needs to understand that, that they may need to see, understand what they have to offer that, the, that would benefit the landlord, which makes the landlord feel a lot better about giving them the relief. Yeah, Brooks makes a great point. And, and we're typically seeing that take place one of two ways. One being, hey, you know, defer three months of rent now and you can add it on the end of the term that I'm obligated to lease-wise. Or three months of deferment now and then you know that delta that you deferred amortizing that over the remaining term those are typically one of the two paths that we're seeing landlords open to having so let's look at another scenario um a somewhat happier scenario maybe maybe when when you return to work um there's going to be a company to which to return to work um but but maybe you decide that your office needs are going to be different, right? You decide, you know, for, for us, for example, I know in our, in our Alpharetta office, we've seen a marked increase in productivity with remote working versus being in the office. Uh, I don't know if we're exceptional or not, right? But you know, other firms may decide that they, they kind of like, for whatever reason, they kind of like this re- remote working kind of scenario, but they're going to keep their office. They may have to, right? Or there may be other reasons to keep it. What are other options to generate value from, from their, their lease space if, if they're not necessarily going to have a full office of employees anymore? Um, but that they still want to, they still want to get value out of the space that they're already paying for and have invested in. You know, how, how might you redeploy that space to be value added? I think it's case by case, Mike. I mean, it really depends upon what what, it, what type of business is it. Do they have clients that come into that space? Do they not have clients come into that space? You know, the, their the, their business is going to dictate how and how they can best redeploy that space. Um, I, I before I get into that a little bit, I, I would say this: it, it is going to be a very interesting time moving forward. Um, you know, you, you've, you, I think what's happening with this forced remote work situation is it's, it's really, um, heightening the awareness of the types of jobs that are okay to do remote 
and the types of jobs that are not okay to do remote or shouldn't be remote. Um, and so I, I think you're going to see that that sort of become a big topic before you understand how are you going to redeploy your space. I can also see the conversations accelerating around, well, if this is a job that needs to be in the office, we maybe would be okay with four days a week in the office and one day remote and creating some more flexibility around what does it look like? Um, what, what does a work week look like for different types of positions? So I think that's the first thing that companies are going to need to get their hands around because you have to understand that first before you start the space program around how to use that space. But then if you get into redeploying space, that's going to, you know, and, and once you understand those things, you're going to, you're going to start looking at, okay, so what, what, what are the areas of our office space that could be used for hoteling? and not having a desk specifically for a person or an office specifically for a person, but it starts to be shared, which is something that's been happening. I could see that accelerating a bit, but I could also see where we're realizing how much we like to be around people. We love connectivity. Energy is created from when, when you're around people. Ideas come from serendipity that happens in water cooler discussions. And, you know, Starbucks wouldn't have been doing so well with people that worked remote if they just stayed at home and worked by themselves. Starbucks is full of people that are remote workers because they like to be around other people. So I think you can see office space being redeployed that replicates to a degree restaurant and coffee shop environments that draw their people in to that environment to work and have the energy of being around people. You know that that, yeah, that that's a really interesting. Sorry, go ahead. You know, to, well, I think Brooks makes a lot of great points, and and this will continue to affirm and and accelerate a trend we've already been witnessing, in the sense that office setting and a work setting, you know, transitioning from a industrial economy to an idea driven economy. I mean, it's. Even 10 years ago, even five years ago, and agreed still pre-COVID, you know, the degree to which the number of businesses still kind of operated with this mentality of, well, this is my, this is my desk, you know, <laughs> this is where I go, this is where I sit. Right. I mean, that, that really kind of originated out of an industrial revolution mindset, which was, you, know, you had to be there for the specific function. And yet, as we've obviously moved to an idea-driven economy, that, that no longer makes sense. Um, and so it doesn't mean, obviously, you go away with, uh, you know, office space, what have you. It just, it just looks dramatically different. In the same sense, an idea-driven economy looks different from an industrial-driven economy. You know, the office space will reflect it. And, and I think some of the things we do certainly know is, one, flexibility will continue to rise. Um, and two, I do think, you know, you've had some of this degree in some place, but Think about, for example, the healthcare industry and the financial services industry. If you're in either of those, you're you're going to continue to a main theme is going to be working with your attorney to really get buttoned up on remote security in the sense of SEC regulations and HIPAA regulations. And you've had a lot of that discussion, you know, from within your office and to some degree, some laptop protocol, what have you. But 
knowing that a flexible um, remote workforce, that's not going away. Some of this is going to be certainly higher post-COVID than was pre. That's just going to continue to put more focus on what does that look like on those specific industries that are highly regulated. You, you know, uh, you touched upon something I want to jump on just a little bit, uh, although we're running out of time, unfortunately, but it, it, it bears it bears discussion. And that is that, you know, the bulk of, of what I see being written right now is that we're never going back to to the old way of doing things. People are going to work remotely a lot more. And uh, you know, I'm I'm not entirely sure that's true. I mean, I, I've been working from home for the bulk of the last ten years or so, um, but I, I think I'm a little bit of an outlier. You know, I, I, I've I've joked before. My my wife's biggest fear about me is not that I'm going to cheat on her, but that I'm going to try to get accepted into the Mars mission as long as they start accepting. Uh, overweight middle-aged men um, yeah. because I'm, I'm going to jump at the opportunity to be isolated for, for 24 months. Um, but, you know, for somebody like she, who is a, you know, as an extrovert, it's, it's really tough. And, you know, I, I think there is going to be a, there is going to be a demand, a pent up demand for that socialization. And, and, you know, uh, Brooks, that, that idea of sort of having a virtual coffee shop within the office, I actually took a note. You know, maybe that's some way we'll actually redeploy our space. You know, can we replicate the Starbucks kind of environment if people just sort of need to change the environment to 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 feel more productive, more creative, more free? Um, I think we'll it's going to unleash some creativity in terms of how better to use space to promote that socialization. Yeah, Mike, and and, and it, it it was already happening. So. Mm-hmm. In the technology industry, anybody that's been competing for developers, they these companies have had to find creative ways already to attract not only through pay but just through culture and what and what what is the office space? Is it a fun office space to come to? And I'm not talking about ping pong tables, but this coffee shop restaurant idea and having you know diner booths, you know, in the break room. Um, great views with bars looking out over the city where you can sit and work. You know, this has been happening and I see this accelerating for, for, for that reason. Um, and it, it's what, it, it's really what, uh, employees have shown that they want. Um, you know, and I'll, 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 I'll say, I, I know we're running out of time here, but, um, I was talking to John Ray a little bit about this before the call. But I've got a quote from Steve Jobs because I was reading Walter Isaacson's. Uh, I'm in the middle of his his, his uh, book on the biography of Steve Jobs, and we we all know Steve's not only a the founder of two, the respected brand Apple, but also Pixar. And he was avid about their office space and including at Pixar. And he is not only a denizen of the digital world, but he knew all too well the isolating potential of technology, and he was a big believer in face-to-face meeting. And he said, there's a temptation in our networked age to think that an idea can be developed by email or iChat. He said, that's crazy. Creativity comes from spontaneous meetings and from random discussions. And I think that, you know, I, I think there's a lot of truth in that. I just think there's a balance that has to be found between flexibility and 
how technology can allow us to be remote and flexible, but also when is it, when and how often should we be face-to-face and what do those environments look like now moving forward? Great point. So um, one last question I want to touch upon is, is the return to work scenario. Um, I, I believe, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, of course, but I believe that, you know, how we, and you touched upon it actually, but you know, how we work um, is going to change. And I think there's going to be some negotiations between tenants and landlords and how to accommodate that. For example, if you now, you know, let's you know, even professional services move to shift work basically. Right. And is the climate control now going to be kept on and who pays for that? Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, one janitorial visit per day is just, is not going to cut it. Right. You're going to need to sterilize the office. I think multiple times a day, I'm certainly advocating that for our firm um, and other kind of logistical uh, issues, uh, you know, employee access. Um, you know, do, do you have to, do you have to put toilet paper in a safe, right? Which sounds absurd, but it's not right. Is, is, you know, is, is it worth thinking now about what the return to work scenario looks like? And are these things that you ought to be talking to your landlord about now about what that looks like? So you can agree in terms of, you know, who's basically who's responsible for what and how. Yeah, I think before, yeah, before you have that conversation with your landlord, I think with your advisors and your executive team, you first want to, and, and asking questions among all your employees, you want to understand what is your need as a company first? What, what's your plan to address this? Because you don't want to go get out in front of this with a landlord before you know what you're really asking for and why, because you want it to support your long-term, long-term business needs and, and short-term with addressing the, the you know, it, making sure that you're getting the janitorial services that you need. And once you establish what the need is, then you go engage in a conversation, proactive conversation with your landlord to address those things. Um, you know, but I think, you know, depending upon how long this lasts, there's an opportunity to uh, be in a better position as a tenant with more leverage uh, in, in, in the cycle that we may be entering into. Um, so this could be an opportunity for tenants to eventually, not right away, um, certainly if you have a lease expiration coming up to restructure leases, um, there may be, uh, well, there's not, there's going to be a lot more subleases on the market, which is going to, uh, be competitive, uh, with the direct lease options for landlords. So, you know, I, I think that there's going to be an opportunity to push some of the responsibility for additional expenses onto the landlord and have more incentives. To, uh, that the landlords are offering. Those are great points. And I, I think one, one noteworthy point to consider for those uh, working primarily in an office setting who are leading a company is that it very is, it, it's very possible that landlords for a season of time as we start to get back may have kind of revised density uh, requirements that, that the tenants are going to want to be aware of. You know, and that, and again, it's not that landlords are looking to be difficult. We just don't know what conversations they're having with lenders and probably in that, primarily in that sense, probably their insurance 
brokers in the sense of to mitigate any outbreak, it's very possible, you know, you don't, you don't want to kind of have an internal planning session, come up with a plan and then find out it's not compatible with what the landlord will allow. And I, I don't think it's going to last forever, but I, I, I could very well see a scenario where, you know, hey, the ban is lifted. And so then for the next 30 days or 45 or 60 days, there's kind of a revised density issue that landlords uh, are asking slash mandating their, their tenants adhere to. Yeah, I think Andy brings up a great point. Historically, you know, square footage of use per person has been 300 square feet or higher. And over the last several years, that's gotten down um, sub 200. So you could see where there's not as many people that need to be in the office, but they still need almost as many square feet because the it's being mandated that there is it's not allowed to be that dense anymore. And you have to have more square feet per person. Uh, I could I could see that potentially happening. Huh? Yeah, certainly certainly places like California, New York, you may very well see that. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. I think it's a great observation. Um, guys, this this has been great. We're already over time, and, and I want to be as I try to be uber respectful of your, of your time. Um, if people have other questions that we weren't able to cover today, how can people contact you? Sure. We, we, um, we're obviously with, if you go online and Google Cressa, uh, this is Andy Robertson, Brooks Morris. Uh, we're both in the Atlanta office. You know, obviously our website's a great resource to learn about our firm. And then you can specifically visit the Atlanta link, uh, as well as, you know, Brooks has a personalized bio page. I myself have personalized bio page. And uh, on LinkedIn, uh, please feel free. We've got a lot of great thought leadership resources on our website. That's probably the easiest uh, direct place to go to. Again, www.cresa.com and, and happy to be a resource uh, specifically and or just kind of general questions. Uh, you know, we're always looking to receive feedback from the front lines, if you will. So welcome, welcome those conversations. Well, that's going to wrap it up for today's program. I'd like to thank Brooks Morris and Andy Roberts of Cressa so much for joining us and sharing their expertise with us. We'll be exploring a new topic each week, so please tune in so that when you're faced with your next executive decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us so that we can help them. Once again, this is Mike Blake, our sponsor is Brady & Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast.